The talk tonight is on emptiness and karma. Um, I hope you all came back all in one piece from your little excursion into activity. But because we're going back into the world of activity and relationship, I thought this might be an appropriate time to talk about karma. Sally talked about it earlier in the retreat, and that was uh, sort of in regards to the practice of equanimity. Tonight I want to talk about it in regards to emptiness, because karma and emptiness might seem like they oppose each other. If there's no self, who do actions come back to? If there's no self, who does actions in the first place? So these are the kinds of things we want to look at. We've talked, I think, about how the self tends to get formed around, say, taking ourselves to be the body. You know, this is my body or I am the body. We form it around emotions. I am happy, I am sad, my joys, my sorrows. Um, We form it around uh, thoughts. I'm the thinker. Uh, We form it around uh, an identification with consciousness. When we take ourselves to be the observer, that's kind of looking out from the eyes and experiencing sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, etc. Like there's an observer, there's a little being inside our head. So you've had, you know, weeks to look at these questions, and hopefully these are not so um, firmly held anymore. Sense of self around these areas, but there are two other ways that self sneaks in. Now, one is we identify with making a decision. Who decides? When you decide to stand up after a sit, who decides? When you decide how much food to take at lunch, who decides that? So often in this moment of choice, it feels like there's an I there who's doing the choosing or the deciding. And you may remember our former president famously said, I'm the decider. (laughs) So that identification comes in easily. The second place that it comes in is around the area of personality. We take ourselves to be a certain way based on our personality, the way we show up in the world, the way we manifest. And maybe most deeply, that's who we take ourselves to be this particular personality. And that's who we take others to be. We know somebody by their personality. And we think that's who they are. Both these questions, the decider and the personality, are really questions about karma. And so we want to look at them in relationship to the concept of emptiness and see if there's a self lurking there that isn't actually a self. So we're going to look at this field of karma, which means action. In the Indian languages that we work with, karma is a Sanskrit term. It just means action originally. The Pali term is kama. Same thing, just meant action. In the time of the Buddha, there were all kinds of theories in India about action. So some schools, philosophical schools, said action doesn't matter. I can kill someone, I can steal, won't affect me. Actions have no consequences. Other schools said, well, action is all predetermined. It's all set beforehand by prior causes and conditions. So it doesn't matter what you do or don't do, the same thing's going to happen. That was another school. And another school said, um, it's all God's activity. There's no individual responsibility because God is directing everything. The Buddha came along and said, these are all speculative views. You people don't know what on earth you're talking about. And this is when he defined Kama from his own direct insight and his own knowledge. And this is in uh, the study guide on quote 15 on page 4. This is the foundational teaching that he gave on the question of karma. It is volition that I call karma. For having willed, one acts by body, speech, or mind. So two important things here. 
Action is based in the volition. We'll come back to that in a second. And action can happen through three spheres, body, speech, and mind. If you talk to someone in the West, they normally think of action as coming through speech or body. They don't think of mental events as being actions. But in the Buddhist teachings, mental events are also action because they spring from a volition. So we need to look in all three of these areas to see where action is happening. And the important weight of it is this factor called volition. Sometimes we translate this as intention. The Pali term is chetana. Um, But the synonyms are volition, intention, will, which shows up in this quotation, having willed, one acts, urge or impulse or motivation. So the volition is the underlying energy that comes out of the mind that propels an action of mind, speech, or body. A group of Western teachers were meeting with the Dalai Lama years ago. It used to be a group that would go over and meet with him in Dharamsala every year for a while, and then he, he discontinued it. And so this group of Westerners was meeting and they asked him, um, do you think we should teach about karma in the West? And he said, it's more important to teach Westerners about karma than it is to teach them about emptiness. So we've been teaching about emptiness, so now we're teaching about karma. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to salute the Dalai Lama. You know, Westerners fall in love with the philosophical glitz of Buddhism. Topics like emptiness and not-self and nibbana, the unconditioned. But what the Dalai Lama was saying is teach people about karma because it is so important. Basically, if we want to be happy, we should study karma because it defines the route to happiness. And if we follow it, it leads to happiness, only one direction. So really, once we start to get to know this factor, it becomes our best friend. It takes us to happiness if we follow it, if we understand it. It's a reliable guide to happiness. So this is the basic teaching of the Buddha's law, what's been called the law of karma. Actions from wholesome volitions lead to wholesome results. And what are or good results, let's say. What are good results? In the Buddhist terms, these are results that are, quote, wished for, desired, and agreeable. So it brings the things into our life that we want in our life. And the wholesome volitions that do this, I'm going to put them under three broad categories. And these are a little bit um, paraphrased. But the broad categories basically are generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. These are the three volitions that lead to happy results. And similarly, actions from unwholesome volitions lead to results that are unwished for, undesired, and disagreeable. That means pain. These actions bring pain into our lives. So what are the unwholesome volitions? You know them well. Greed, aversion, and delusion. So it's their opposites that lead to the wholesome volitions. And one of the earliest, um, yeah, I think they're the first stanzas in the Dhammapada really bring this out, where the Buddha says, mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with an impure mind, and sorrow will follow you, like the wheel of the cart follows the oxen. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. So fortunately, the Buddha didn't just give us this nice philosophical advice. He laid out the wholesome and unwholesome actions so that we can be really careful about our conduct of body, speech, and mind. So we'll start with the unwholesome. He gave a list of 10 unwholesome actions. These are actions to be avoided. And he divided them into the three spheres of body, speech, and mind. So in the sphere of body, 
the unwholesome actions are killing living beings, taking what isn't given, and hurting others through sexuality. And these are very familiar from the five lay precepts. And then in terms of speech, there are four unwholesome actions. And the first is also in the precepts. It's false speech, telling lies, telling what's untrue. And the three other kinds of speech that are harmful are harsh speech or angry speech, divisive speech, which sets one person against another, or meaningless speech, basically gossip, idle chatter, sometimes called it. These are not helpful. And then this is very interesting. There are three unwholesome actions of mind. You rarely hear this list. They're not in the precepts because they don't rise to bodily conduct. But the unwholesome actions of mind are covetousness, wanting what is someone else's, ill will, wishing harm to someone else, and wrong view. This is really interesting. Wrong view means not understanding the way the world works. And you can see this, can't you? If, if someone believed that, for instance, that action doesn't matter and that it's fine for them to kill people, that wrong view can lead to real injury for others and for oneself. So the Buddha said that um, wrong view is the foundation of all the other wrong actions. So the wholesome, 10 wholesome acts are to refrain from the 10 unwholesome acts. So if you don't commit any of the unwholesome acts, then your actions are considered wholesome. So this is not easy to do, right? Have you ever found yourself killing insects or telling little white lies or saying something to one person that you know would hurt another if they, if they overheard it? So these are really great areas for practice, and we can continue refining our conduct in all these areas. So some years ago, uh, James Barraz and I were teaching a class in the Bay Area at a juvenile hall. And this is the first one I know of, of Vipassana teachers going into the juvenile halls. It later became very established, and there were a couple of different projects in the Bay Area that that did this. So James and I had been invited in by a nurse who was a Vipassana practitioner who worked in the juvenile hall. If you're not uh, from the U.S., you might not know, a juvenile hall is a holding facility. It's basically a jail for people who are under 18, so under the adult age. And they're awaiting trial. So we were taken into the sort of maximum security wing of this juvenile hall in San Mateo. And we were working with a group of young guys who were in there accused of things like um, larceny, grand larceny, assault with a deadly weapon, murder, rape, serious accusations. They had not come to trial yet, so we didn't know if they were guilty or not but they were in on serious charges. And generally they would be held in the jail for some months before their trial date would come up. So these young guys, 16, 17, maybe 15, not a lot of self-knowledge at that age. None of us had much self-knowledge at that age. And they're kind of penned up for months with other young guys who are in similar states of worry, anxiety, fear about their future, because they don't know what the judge is going to say, and they might be put away for years if they're convicted. And so there's this atmosphere of a lot of anxiety and a certain amount of aggression that they're just living within and trying to deal with as best they can. So we went in and um, met with a group of about 10 from this maximum security wing And fortunately, one of their, um, I don't know if if he would be called a guard or a probation officer, he worked in the facility. And he he was a guy that they respected. 
who's kind of a big guy, a strong guy, and somebody that they would listen to. So he sat in on the sessions with us, and we went in and taught meditation. I don't think he was there because he was interested in learning meditation, but he went along to make it you know, work for us. So we had no idea what these young guys would think about a couple of middle-aged white guys coming in and talking about Buddhist meditation. But we just taught them. We did it over six weeks, and we'd do a different class each week. And you, know, you can probably imagine, you know, we would do breath, and then body, and then sounds, and emotions, and thoughts. When we got to the emotions, that's when the liberating potential of the practice came clear to them. Because we gave them specific instructions for how to work with fear and how to work with anger. And people took these instructions, and because they had a lot of time just being in their cells or lying on their bed, they could practice. And they found mindfulness actually could really relieve the stress of the emotions they were going through. So by the end of about five weeks, we had gained a certain amount of credibility, a little bit. And so James and I were coming up to the last class and we said, uh, should we teach about karma? Or another way to phrase it, should we teach about sila? And this is, um, you know, this could be a little fraught territory because these guys don't want to be lectured to. They don't want us to come off as moralistic. And so we were curious whether we should do it or not. We said, what the heck, it's our last meeting, why not? We're going to be out of here. So we went in and we framed the teaching as the science of happiness. We basically said, if you want to be happy, these are some things you might want to think about. And then I started to kind of lay out the general principles of the way karma works. And I just asked the group, does this sound like something that you know might fit for you? And one of the guys held up his hand and he said, You mean what goes around comes around? I said, yeah, absolutely, you got it. So this concept was not all that far away. So one of the interesting things about the teaching on karma is um, it operates whether you know it or not. It operates whether you believe in it or not. It operates whether your religion believes in it or not. It operates whether your culture believes in it or not. It's a universal law. It's one of those things about nature that the Buddha discovered. It works. So as we go back into um, daily life, really helpful to start to look at this area of um, cause and effect in relation to our own conduct. And one of the things the Buddha said is that when we take real care with our conduct, we enjoy what he called the bliss of blamelessness, which is a really delightful thing to have. Here's one quote from his discourses. Restraint in conduct is for the sake of lack of remorse. Lack of remorse is for the sake of gladness. Gladness is for the sake of peace of mind. So as we take more and more care with our conduct, our heart gladdens and the mind comes into peace. This is the beauty of taking care with conduct. And it's all based on our intentions. You start to see how important this factor of volition or intention is. The Dalai Lama was um, at Spirit Rock some years ago. It was a really wonderful opportunity. He came to address a meeting of teachers at Spirit Rock. It was really terrific to have him there. Actually, Sally and I brought down a chair from our house because it was the biggest chair that we could find at the time, and he sat in it for two days. So we've never really cleaned that chair since. (laughs) Still got the vibes going. Anyway, it was kind of interesting. It was fun to watch him with a group of Western teachers. I don't think we used the time so well, but people would give a presentation to him, like a five-minute presentation on how the Dharma was unfolding in the West. And then we'd ask him to respond. 
And sometimes, you know, he'd say a few things about what he thought. But another time, uh, you know, people made this presentation and, and he said, oh, that, you know, we asked what he thought. He said, oh, nothing left up here. <laughs> he said, a few minutes ago when you were speaking, I had some thoughts, but all gone now. <laughs> but never mind. You know, and he just, he just cracked up. It was very funny. He was just really honest and real with us. So at one point, one of the teachers who had a lot more chutzpah than I would ever have had said, you know, your holiness, as Buddhism is coming to the West, there's a lot of popularizing going on. And as it gets popularized, some of the deeper aspects of the teaching might be getting lost. And then he said, and you, your holiness, are the biggest popularizer of all of us. What advice do you have for us? So the Dalai Lama just got quiet and reflected for a moment. And he said, some people you see call me living Buddha. Or they call me the God King. And no, I am not. I am just a simple Buddhist monk. Others call me counter-revolutionary. Or they call me a wolf in monk's clothing. But you see, I look back at my own intention. If my intention is sincere, then that is what is important. How I'm perceived is up to others. I don't care. And he said that really emphatically. I don't care. That was a fantastic thing to say for somebody who basically carries the whole weight of Tibetan culture on his shoulders, responsible for all the international relations that go on between Tibet and China and the rest of the world. And he said, how people perceive me, I don't care. He checks his intention. If the intention is sincere, that's what matters. So that's a really powerful statement. If we are in touch with our actual motivation when we act, and we come from a wholesome intention, then that's the place we can rest, even if we're criticized. Even if our words land in a way we hadn't understood or expected, and the impact that Sally was talking about is different than our intention, if we're sincere about our intention, we can learn from that. We can acknowledge, oh, I didn't know that. Okay, I'll do better next time. But our intention was sincere. So this area of karma is hugely important. And that's revealed in the next quote, number 16, which is on page 5 in the study guide. Beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. Their actions are the womb from which they are born. Their actions are their friend, their refuge. Whatever acts they perform, good or bad, of those they will be the heirs. So the Buddha is basically saying, we've inherited the actions of our earlier self, and whatever actions we do today, we will inherit later on. They're the womb from which we're born. So beings take their nature from the actions that they have created earlier. Whatever acts they perform of those, we will be the heirs. Notice in this passage, the Buddha is talking about beings. He's not talking about the five aggregates. So beings, as we've said, is a conventional designation for the assembly of the five aggregates, but it's a conventional term. So he's not doing an ultimate kind of pointing, not trying to see emptiness in this passage. He's trying to see the the effect on beings. So, beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. Their actions are the womb from which they are born. Westerners often feel a resistance to this idea. You know, maybe it has to do with our, our democratic ideals of, of equality. Maybe we think it puts too much responsibility on individuals for Uh, creating some of their own suffering. And maybe this view seems cold or uncaring or cruel. But that's not the way the Buddha intended it to be understood. 
It doesn't mean that beings deserve to suffer. If the Buddha could have taken away the suffering from the most murderous criminal on the face of the earth, I'm convinced he would have done it. And you can see that in the way he related to Angulimala. You all probably know the story of Angulimala. He was told by a spiritual teacher that he could only advance in the te- a so-called spiritual teacher that he could only advance in the teachings if he uh, collected the fingers of one thousand hand from a thousand people whom he'd killed. So he had to collect a thousand fingers and wear them in a necklace, a mala, around his neck. So Angulimala means finger necklace. So it said that Angulimala had killed 999 people, collected a finger from each, and decided the Buddha would be his 1,000th victim. And the Buddha's friend said, don't walk that way, venerable one. There's a killer out there who wants to take your life and finish his vow. And the Buddha said, I'm going to walk that way. So he walked on this mountain path near where Angulimala was hiding, As Angulimala saw the Buddha, he rushed out, tried to kill him, but he couldn't catch him. The Buddha used special powers, and Angulimala ran as fast as he could, but he couldn't catch the Buddha. So Angulimala shouted out, Stop! Stop! And the Buddha said, I have stopped, Angulimala. Now you stop. Meaning, stop your mind. So Angulimala was so impressed that this person wasn't afraid of him that he said, what's up with you? (laughs) And so the Buddha gave him teachings right there. Angulimala did come from a spiritual background, but he was seriously misguided. So the Buddha gave him teachings and invited him into the order, the monastic order. Angulimala practiced hard, because he knew he didn't have a good outlook if he didn't. (laughs) That was a good motivator. And as it says, in not too long a period of time, Angulimala became fully awakened. So this is the Buddha's compassion. You know, you can look at the horrors of those crimes. You can look at the terrible karma that Angulimala had created for himself. And yet the Buddha's compassion was, let me free this being. I think this being has potential to wake up. And he did. Interestingly, as Angulimala continued in his life as a monastic, he would go out for alms and people would stone him because they knew of his prior actions. And Angulimala would come back and complain to the Buddha, but people are stoning me. And the Buddha said, you must bear it. This is just a small portion of the suffering that you would have endured if you hadn't become awakened. So I believe the Buddha didn't want anyone to suffer, regardless of their background, regardless of their actions. But karma is a law. Expecting someone to commit unwholesome acts and not receive unwholesome fruits, that would be like expecting gravity not to operate. That'd be like expecting an apple, you know, in late summer, to come off a tree and not fall to the ground. If the apple comes off the tree, it's going to fall to the ground. If we do unwholesome actions, there is going to be some result of unhappiness in our lives. So sometimes people think, well, this is a really heartless view. It condones heartlessness because we say, oh, if someone is suffering, well, that's their karmic result. So that's their problem. It's not my problem. I don't have to worry about that. They brought it on themselves. Well, first of all, we don't know that everything that someone experiences is the result of their action. We don't know that. But even if it is, to respond as it's not my problem is called indifference. This is the near enemy of equanimity. It's not equanimity. It's closing our heart to them. If our heart stays open, we see the suffering and compassion wants to relieve the suffering, whatever the source. Just like the Buddha was able to relieve Angulimala's suffering, even though he could see all the unwholesome acts behind it. So, 
Seeing karma does not bring indifference if understood correctly. We want to alleviate suffering, whatever the source. And often we don't know the source of someone else's suffering. So you can see these fruits of action in at least six different ways. And I'm just going to kind of name them quickly. One is before we act, we become aware of the motivation in doing the action and we can either feel great about it or we feel a little off about it. I was on a conference call once with an, uh, an IMS committee and we were disagreeing a lot about what to do about some particular topic. And I was particularly disagreeing with one other person on the conference call. And then afterwards, this person sent me an email that I thought was very disrespectful. And of course, other people on the committee had been listening on the call too. And my first thought was, I'm going to forward that email to the rest of the committee. Because it would show how unreasonable they were being and then would undermine their view. You know, and I was kind of enjoying the thought of doing that. (laughs) And then I realized, oh, something doesn't feel right. And I thought, I won't send that email. So I picked up the phone and I called the person and we talked it through instead. But I knew that it didn't feel right. On the other hand, when you're thinking about doing something wholesome, it feels good to think about it. So we feel the effect before we act. We feel it in doing the action. When you do something that's kind for someone, you know, who enjoys it more, you or them? You know, when you give a present that somebody really touches somebody, doesn't that feel great? Um, When you do a favor for someone who needs some help, when you help an animal that's injured, it just feels great to do that. So we feel it in the immediate moment of doing the action. And on the other hand, if someone is harming somebody else, you know there's, there's harm to them in that as they're doing it. Sylvia Borstein has this nice phrase, anyone causing great pain is themselves in great pain. And that's a really good thing to remember. Harm comes out of inner pain. And so we can have compassion there too. The third way we see the effect is when we remember our past actions. One of the instructions in beginning the loving kindness practice is to reflect on good actions that you've undertaken, things that have helped people, things that have come out of a spirit of caring. And when we reflect on those things, we feel good about ourselves. That then becomes the cause, the proximate cause for loving kindness to arise toward ourselves. And the other side of that in metta practice is that often as a purification practice, we remember things we've done that haven't been so skillful. So when those memories come up, we don't feel so good. We feel the pain of regret or remorse or shame. So the fourth way is actions come back to us in the ways people relate to us. If we're kind, thoughtful, caring to others, People are happy to see us, and we get love and care back. If we're always grouchy, critical, complaining, judgmental, people don't really want to see us coming, and they kind of move away, or they close their hearts to us. So our actions come back in our relationships quickly. The fifth way, our actions come back in habitual states of mind. I don't know if you've noticed this during this month. (laughs) Yeah. When the mind moves, why does it move? And how does it move? Does it seem like a habit? Yeah, and basically it moves where we have invested in the past, where we've put our time and energy and attachment in the past, That's where it moves when we get quiet and sit. This is from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. If they frequently think and ponder upon thoughts of sense desire, ill will, and cruelty, then their mind inclines to thoughts of sense desire, 
ill will, and cruelty. If they frequently think and ponder upon thoughts of renunciation, of kindness, of compassion, then their mind inclines to thoughts of renunciation, kindness, and compassion. So these habits of mind reinforce themselves. They wear grooves in the mind, and then that groove plays out again and again. And then the sixth way that the law of karma operates is that results show up in the future in mysterious ways that we can't fully understand or verify. So what about this statement of the Buddhas that when you speak and act from a pure mind, happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. One of the basic teachings of the law of karma is that happiness follows goodness. Happiness follows goodness. That's kind of mind-blowing to me. That's a law of the universe. How does that work? I don't know, but I believe it. And so when you understand that this is a law of the universe, immutable law for all beings everywhere, it destroys the notion that the law of karma is cold or uncaring or amoral. Because morality, this connection between virtue and happiness, is woven into the very fabric of the universe. It's not a cold, indifferent, amoral universe. The connection between kindness and happiness is woven right in to it. So for me, this is what makes the world a warm, caring, and moral place to be, a trustworthy place to be, this law of karma. Now, one of the things the Buddha said is you can't figure out the connection between actions and results. He said somebody who tries to figure that out is going to go mad and experience vexation. (laughs) I'm not sure which comes first, but go mad and experience vexation. He said this is one of the four imponderables. There are four topics that if you turn your mind to it, you're not going to find it out, and it'll really get you stirred up and annoyed. So one of them is the workings of karma, how results come from actions. The Buddha could see this, he said, through his powers of mind, but it's not a rational thing that we can understand. It's too complicated. Another imponderable, he said, is the range of the mind of a Buddha, the power of a concentrated mind, and the beginnings of the universe. Scientists are still trying. They haven't figured it out yet. So we don't know how results show up. And we don't know what's in our life or in somebody else's life that is a karmic result. I don't know if this has ever happened in your circle of friends, but someone gets sick, gets a serious disease, and a friend, another friend comes along and says, oh, that must be your karma. That's a horrible thing to say. Because we don't know that, and it can't help them in the least. It's a very kind of insulting thing to say. So the Buddha was once asked, does all the pleasure and pain in our life come from past action? And he said, you can't say that. He said, there are other causes for the pleasure and pain in our life. He said, uh, could be from illness, could be from diet could be from climate, could be from an accident, could be from an assault. And he said, people who tell you that everything comes from past action don't know what they're talking about. So we don't say karma is responsible for everything. It's one of the laws that operates in the universe, but it's not the only law. There are physical laws, biological laws, chemical laws, maybe psychological laws, also operating, and karma is one of those. So sometimes we want to you know, look at our present circumstances and say, well, did that come from my past actions? And we usually ask it when we're suffering, right? <laughs> oh, what did I do in the past to bring this on? You can never assume 
that it's because of a past action, because we just don't know. This is like using karma as a rearview mirror. Okay, here I am in the present. What was there in the past? We can't see that. The Buddha could see that at times, he said, but we can't see that. And whatever story we make up is just speculation. It has no real truth, truth value. It'd just be a story we were telling ourselves. So it's not useful to try and figure out the past cause of the current situation. Where it is you, where the law of karma is useful is heading forward because it shines a really bright light about our path forward. So we take it from here onward. Okay, now that I understand, how can I make the best choices possible going forward to create the conditions for happiness in the future? So we use it as a a headlight and not a rearview mirror. So sometimes people will say, you know, I don't, I don't really believe in karma. You know, I know, you know what people say. I don't really believe in that. What they usually mean is they don't believe in this sixth kind of results coming into the future that they can't see or verify. But the first five kinds that I talked about are verifiable. You can see those in your life. They say this mysterious one. Oh, I'm not going to believe in that. that. That's just a theory. So my suggestion is hang out with the possibility that it might be true. And over time, you might come to have faith in it. I've come to have a lot of faith in the law of karma. I've just observed many people's lives over the course of a lot of years now, looking at them through this lens, and I have a lot of faith in it. But we all have to do our own investigation. So I'm not telling you what you should believe, but I am suggesting it's worth considering And also to suggest, don't form the opinion that it's not true. Because you don't know that either. And if you take up the opinion, it's not true. That's part of what the Buddha would call wrong view. So be careful. (laughs) Keep your mind open and keep looking. Okay, so karma and emptiness. Let's talk about emptiness of self. At first, they seem contradictory. If there's no self, who acts? Or who's affected by the results of action? And in the Buddha's time, one of the monks asked him this. The monk said, what self then will actions performed by the not-self affect? And the Buddha just said, you haven't been listening to me. He didn't try to answer it. You haven't been listening to me. But actually, Karma and not-self need each other to make sense. They rely on each other. So the first thing we want to look at is, is there a self in volition or intention? When you undertake an action, is there an I inside that's doing that? So let's take an example of a volitional act, simple volitional action, and look. So I might be sitting in my room in the morning, it might be chilly, And I'd come down and say, um, I was cold, so I put on a shawl. That's a simple sentence that we could say any day of the year, and everybody would understand. But when we look at that action in a little more detail, there's more going on than that. So let's say you're sitting, you're mindful, you're in the present moment, and the first thing you notice is a sensation in the body that registers as cold. So it starts off mindfulness of sensation. The cold aspect is felt as unpleasant. So there's a Vedana to it that's felt as unpleasant. Based on the unpleasant Vedana, there's easily a reaction of aversion, not liking the cold. Based on the reaction of aversion, there's some searching and maybe you feel you know, the rest of the body is warm or there's a memory of warm, so there's a perception of warm. And then maybe an image comes of the shawl that's right next to you. So a memory comes. Then there's a desire for that warmth, that remembered warmth. So another mental state has arisen. And out of that, the arm moves, picks up the shawl, and places it. 
So it's not just as simple as I was cold, I pulled up the shawl. There was a cold sensation. There was a reaction of aversion. There was a, um, a desire. There was a perception of the shawl. All these things cascaded before that volition formed to make that action happen. So the volition is just one more link in the chain of all those physical and mental events kind of going back and forth. And eventually it reaches a directive from the mind to the arm to pull a shawl up. So volition is just another impersonal factor of mind, conditioned by all the other things that are going on at the time. And kind of born out of that. So we say it's conditioned by sense contact and by other mental factors, qualities of aversion, memory, perception, desire, before the volition will will come to action, will actually do something. So then the question comes up, wow, I see this kind of mechanical nature of um, volition and action. Is it all determined? It's so conditioned, is it determined? Or do I actually have any free will or not? Maybe you never really generated out of your own free will the interest to meditate. It was just kind of the piling up of many conditions in your life. So here's what I would say in response to that, is there free will? I would say that volition is is conditioned, but it's not determined. So there is um, an element of freedom. If we said it was determined, we fall into the view of fatalism, which says there's really nothing to be done. It's all going to play out according to some predetermined scheme. So we see that volition arises based on other factors, especially of the mind. If we want wholesome volitions to come, the mind ought to be in a wholesome place. In other words, volition needs to come from a place where it's supported by factors like generosity, kindness, and wisdom. Because if the mind is in a state of greed, aversion, and delusion, the chance of wholesome action coming out of that, not as high. So this is why it's really important as we walk the path to keep the mind in a wholesome place so that our actions will come out of a wholesome place and the actions will be wholesome in themselves, bringing wholesome results and happiness. If there were free will, really, we could all say, all my actions will come out of you know, generosity, kindness, and wisdom. All my actions will come from wholesome motivation. Can you say that? No because we still fall into greed, aversion, and delusion, and sometimes we act from those things. So even though we don't want to, sometimes we do, because those are the accompanying mental factors that volition arises from. This is why you know, walking the path is so important toward happiness. We want to make the mental factors more and more wholesome so that the appropriate actions will come from them. Okay, so this is the first area where self could form around volition. But when we look into it, we really see it's just another impersonal factor of mind arises based on other mental factors at the time. Okay, what about personality? Sometimes that's really who we think we are. You know, I'm this kind of person. I'm not that kind of person. We have an image of ourselves. We have an image of others and what we call their personality. So personality is interesting because, you know, if I ask you to think of five of your friends, I could ask you to describe their personalities, you know, and you could probably do it in a paragraph or something. You kind of know who people are, right? They show up with some consistency time and time again. So we say personality has some consistency. Is there a self in there? Then that's 
That's really the question. And if you've been a parent, you really know personality shows up as soon as the kid is born, right? Parents will have two children, very different personalities, and they recognize those personalities really young, when the kids are really young. So there is some consistency to personality. But the way I like to think about it is it's like a stream. In some Buddhist schools, there's this concept that beings have or are a mind stream. And I think this is a great way to, um, to think about it. So I don't know if you've walked during this retreat around Gaston Pond. You know, you get to one side of the pond and there's a creek, there's a stream that flows out from the pond. The overflow crosses the road and goes down a little stream. So you could stand by that stream and say, well, what is a stream? Well, it's not the banks. Really, it's the, it's the flowing water. You look at that stream closely. Is there anything fixed in a stream? No. You know, a bit of water's here and then it's there. It's always moving. It's always changing. The stream is never the same for two moments in a row. The water's flowing by and disappearing. So in the stream, is anything fixed? No. That water is constantly changing. But different streams have different characteristics. Like the stream that flows out of Gaston Pond is um, fast, clear, clean. But if you drive an hour to the west from here, you'll cross the Connecticut River. The Connecticut River is very broad. It's brown. It's kind of muddy. And it's slow moving. So there are two streams, but they're very different from one another. So personalities like that. Personalities a mind stream, but one can be very different from another. In both the river stream and the mind stream, there's nothing fixed. It's always changing, always flowing. In our mind stream, different states circle past each other, one after another, sometimes really quickly, as you all have noticed this retreat. And yet, for each individual, there are kind of similar patterns that come up again and again. You know, we know some people come across as warm and caring. Some people come across as cool or aloof. Some people are shy. Some are extroverted. Some are funny. Some are serious. We know people by these kinds of things. And there is some consistency in that. So, if I was going to define personality... You can take it or leave it, but I would define it as collective habits of thinking, feeling, speaking, and acting. Collective habits of thinking, feeling, speaking, and acting. And that's how you know someone. What are those habits for each person that you know among your friends? That constitutes their personality. Does this remind you of any of the aggregates? Which one? Sankaras, isn't it? Formations, volitional formations. There's that word volition again. The fourth aggregate is volitional formations. It's more or less the exact same description. Volitional formations are habitual ways, so far we've mostly said, of thinking and feeling. The speaking and acting come out of ways of thinking and feeling. And in the full definition of sankharas, it includes actions of speech and actions of body. We didn't bring that in earlier because in silent meditation you're not not doing much speaking and acting. But in the full definition of sankhara, it does include speech and bodily action. So it's more or less identical to the definition of personality. So there's consistency. Is personality a fixed thing? If you look at that stream of sankharas, is there anything fixed in there? No. Just like a river stream, 
just running on one after the other, after the other, after the other. Yet in each of us, certain kinds of actions come up again and again and again through the force of habit. But it's not always like that. Even if you have a friend who you think is kind, sometimes they're probably mean. Even if you have a friend you know, who you think of as generous, sometimes they're probably contracted and not so generous. So the personality is a pattern, but it's not fixed. There's nothing fixed in it. But until we start waking up, the patterns have a certain circular quality. They just keep going around and reinforcing each other. So it's kind of like there's this um, lake that's been designed by M.C. Escher, where the outflow circles around and feeds back into the inflow. And so the same patterns keep going around and around and around, repeating themselves. And that's called Lake Samsara. (laughs) So that's our mind stream when we come into the Dharma. When we first meet the Dharma, we've been circulating in Lake Samsara for a long time. And those grooves have gotten worn into our minds, even into our brains. As many people have said, it's not so easy to change one's personality. Because of these strong forces of habit in our mental actions. So we have this quote from the Buddha. And when he uses the word action in this, the the word is karma. Action makes the world go round. Action makes this generation turn. Living beings are bound by action like the chariot wheel by the pin. Beings are bound by karma like the chariot wheel by the pin. That's a strong bond. And that's the Buddha speaking to the strength of these mental habits that we've been cultivating for years, if not lifetimes. We're bound to them. And that's why Dharma practice is so difficult. We're bound to our habits in this way. It's strong, but it's not invincible. It's not unbreakable. And that's what practice is about. That's what the path is for. This is a quote from one of my teachers. The purpose of our Dharma practice is to transform the habits of mind that lead to suffering. There is no other purpose. And interestingly, Dharma practice uses the law of karma for this transformation. So the path itself is a karmic unfolding. As we practice wholesome mind states, they arise more often. These qualities that you've been generating of mindfulness, loving kindness, energy, renunciation, patience, calm, non-identification, wisdom. Each moment of one of these is like a new um, tributary flowing into our stream, flowing into our mind stream. And over time, they start to redirect the course of the stream away from Lake Samsara, and now it's flowing toward the Nibbonic Ocean. (laughs) That's why we practice. We're starting to turn the stream in a different direction. If there was anything fixed in personality, the stream couldn't be turned. But there isn't anything fixed in personality. There are patterns, but nothing is fixed. And so the new intentions start to move it in a completely different direction. They move it in the direction of liberation. And they can do that because our ignorance is not fixed either. Ignorance is just another changing part of that karmic stream, that mind stream. And as we shift the intentions that are flowing in that mind stream, the mind starts to move in a new direction toward liberation. So we start to see, you know, the mind stills a little bit and we look at our situation. We're adrift on this changing sea of circumstances that is life. Some pleasant, some unpleasant, some predictable, some completely unpredictable. Where are we going to go? 
how are we going to go? Where is safety? The only thing we have to steer by is intention. That's all we've got. And the intention is just in this moment. So practice is always about what's the appropriate intention in this moment that will advance the mind to a wholesome state and move the path forward. That becomes our rudder. That's what we can count on. That's what we can rely on. That's how we steer in this chaotic, seeming thing called life. We find that we have a reliable rudder, which is our own intention. And then our life moves in new directions based on our sustained intentions. Our life totally transforms. And I don't just mean our mind transforms. Our whole external life transforms also based on our wholesome intentions. This is another quote from the study guide. It's on page five. There's a wonderful Indian teacher named uh, Srini Sargadatta Maharaj who worked with Westerners uh, in the form of dialogue. He didn't give Dharma talks, but people would come and, and talk with him. And one of his books is on the, the reading list called I Am That. So this, um, this particular excerpt, a Westerner is in dialogue with Maharaj, who says to him, your own will has been the backbone of your destiny. And the questioner says, well, surely karma interfered. Maharaj, karma shapes the circumstances of your life. The attitudes are your own. Ultimately, your character shapes your life, and you alone can shape your character. Your character shapes your life and you alone can shape your character. And the way we shape our character is the intention we bring moment after moment after moment in the direction of mindfulness, loving kindness, wisdom, renunciation, patience, equanimity. And then the Buddha said that for the arahant, There is no more karma. This is very intriguing, mysterious. He didn't fully explain it. There is no more karma. It means the arhat's not creating new karma. And the Buddha said that such a person has come to the end of karma. And then the Buddha posed the question, what is the action that leads to the end of karma? And he answered his own question in quote 17. I'll let you read it another time. With the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the action that leads to the end of karma. So this is kind of poetical. And I don't have the first-hand experience to be able to tell you about. But the way it's suggested to me is that self-centered activity goes out. For one who has awakened, it has gone out. Self-centered activity has gone out. And for those of us who are awakening, it gets less and less. So our action comes from a wisdom that sees the good of ourselves and the good of others at the same time and leads in the direction of non-doing. The end of karma has something to do with non-doing, at least from a place of center or self. So for me, it has these qualities of um, resting, not acting, stopping, not fabricating, surrender, allowing things to be as they are, Does it remind you of any meditation practices you've done recently? (laughs) So I think part of the beauty and the power of the awareness practices that we've been doing is that we are practicing the end of karma. We are practicing for the end of self-centeredness. We are practicing for the purpose of awakening Let's just sit for a minute together.
karma shapes the circumstances, the attitudes are your own. Ultimately, your character shapes your life and you alone can shape your character. So there are about 25 minutes for walking and then we'll have the last sit with chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.